we are going to be looking at how to identify entry-level antichrists. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And so far as we've been studying through this letter of 1 John, you know, God has, has been warning the church family about a number of things. Obviously, um, John has been writing and God is speaking to us about the conflict between light and darkness, right? The, the concepts of walking in the light and walking in the darkness. We've been warned about the conflict between obedience and disobedience as we've been really challenged to keep the commandments of God and we've talked about what that means and looks like. And then we also talked about the conflict between love and hate, using a great example of if you don't love your brother and sister, there, there's a problem, right? There's a problem. And then now John is gonna be warning us about a third conflict and it's the conflict between truth and error. You know, I think we all know that there's two major forces at work today in the world. One of those major forces that's at work is truth, right? Is truth itself through the church by the leading of the Holy Spirit. The other major force that's at work in the world today is evil by the efforts of Satan. And we all know that biblically a day is coming when the influence of the church by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, the influence that the church has on the world will be removed. And the full effect, the full character the full expression of sin and evil will then take center stage on the earth through the tribulation period. And the Bible tells us and teaches us that near the end of the culmination of human history here on earth, there's a, a man, a, a superhuman, if you will, is gonna come on the scene who's gonna seem to have all the answers because he's gonna come on the scene when everything seems to be falling apart, when, when nobody, no nation, no government has the answers for what's taking place in the world. And he's gonna come on the scene and seem to have all the answers and seem to fix everything. This man is known as the Antichrist. Now he will have an incredible appeal to the whole world when he comes on the scene. Somebody put it this way. He will have the oratorical skills of a John Kennedy, the inspirational power of a Winston Churchill, the determination of a Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx, the respectability of a Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, and the charm of a Will Rogers, and the genius of a King Solomon. The book of Revelation calls this man the beast and says he will be empowered directly by Satan, and he will use those powers and those incredible abilities against the people of God. He will be the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. But there's another danger that John warns us about and what we'll be looking at in the verses we're looking at this morning. It's not a warning just about the Antichrist, but it's a warning about entry-level Antichrists that exist here and now in the world we live in today. And so verses 18 through 23 that we'll be looking at this morning is about how to recognize them, how to be able to identify them. You know, the term Antichrist, it's a term used in Scripture only by John. John is the only one who uses that actual term. He uses it in 1 John 2, 1 John 4, and 2 John 1 and 7. Interestingly enough, the word antichrist itself isn't found in Revelation. However, he is described there. This word antichrist in the Bible and antichrists is used to describe three different things. It can describe a spirit or an influence or an attitude in the world or in our lives that opposes or denies Jesus Christ. Antichrist can also be used to, to describe false teachers who, who embody this spirit of opposing Jesus Christ and opposing his truth, whether directly or indirectly. And then, of course, the term also refers to a very specific person who will head up the final world rebellion against Jesus Christ in the end times. Now, later on in John's letter, in 1 John 4, 3, John speaks of the spirit of the Antichrist, which I believe is, is in and has been in the world all the way since the very beginning when Satan declared war on God back in Genesis chapter three. This spirit, this attitude of being opposed to Christ, opposed to God and his work. Now this spirit, this, this influence is, is behind every false doctrine that has ever come up in the world. It's behind every religious substitute for Christian truth found in Jesus Christ that has ever come up in the world. And this word antichrist, the, the, the part of it anti means two things, or can mean two things. It can mean against something or instead of something. 
And that just tells us, and we see through the word, that Satan is and has been and will continue to be in a frenzy fighting against Christ, fighting against his eternal truth, and constantly trying to substitute his counterfeits for the realities and the truths that are found only in Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to be speaking of these false teachers who embody the Spirit, the antichrists, plural, that John writes here, and how to recognize them. We're going to look at three ways to recognize them or to acknowledge them, to acknowledge and identify these entry-level antichrists. And the first one will be the test of time. The second one will be the test of togetherness. And the third one will be the test of teaching. But before we get to that, let's begin by worshiping and praising God. We want to thank him, obviously, for what he's done, thank him for what he's doing just recently in our country, and thank you for his work in our lives and in this world. We know he told us that that as we get closer to the end times, things are going to get worse, but God still is victorious at all times, and he still works in and through his people in and in through his church, and we want to worship him and praise him for that work, for dwelling and living within us and helping us to always discern truth from error. Let's pray. Father, We thank you, God, so much for who you are. God, we're so thankful for what you did with our Supreme Court recently, Lord, in protecting the lives of the unborn. We know, God, this didn't do away with abortion, Lord. We know that it just simply said it's not a constitutional right. It never was, and it returned the decision back to the states, Lord. So we know there's still a battle going on. We know, God, we still need to pray against those who are gonna fight aggressively for the right to murder children, to murder the unborn children in this world. God, I pray that we would never forget the 63 million that have lost their lives since Roe v. Wade came into, came into place. God, we know that the church is called to be the salt and the light. We are called to be the, the, the seasoning in this world for morality and goodness and what you want in your heart, God. And we know, Lord, that there are those in this world today that are anti-Christ, those that stand opposed to you, opposed to your truth, opposed to your morality, and opposed to everything that you are and you want, God. And Lord, you use us as your people. Flawed as we are, God, you do mighty miracles through our lives, God, as we trust and yield to you. And so, Lord, today, just encourage us. Build us up, Lord. God, continue to to mold us and to shape us into the people that will stand in this world, Lord, for righteousness. That will stand to help and serve those that are in crisis, Lord, and especially in the context of Roe v. Wade, Lord, the women that, that are in very difficult situations with pregnancies, God, that we would be people to love and to help and to come alongside and to be who you were in this world, God, that you came to lay down your life for our betterment. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We want to worship and praise you now, God, because you are worthy. You are almighty. You are glorious. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as I said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 this morning. And this is actually kind of a part one to a part two, uh, two-part study, and so we'll be dealing with part two next time we gather in, and really dealing in how to resist entry, entry-level antichrist. But this morning, I want to kind of talk about what John says about identifying them so that we can be aware and, uh, and be prepared to uh, deal with that. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 John starts by saying, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. Now again, John uses this term children. It's the same term he used back in verse 12, little children. It's his term of endearment as he's writing to the people that he's writing to. And and, and at this point in his life, he's really... Um, at, at, at the, towards the end of his life, and he's a spiritual father to many, and he's greatly concerned, as, as parents generally are concerned with the growth and the maturity, and he's concerned with the growth and maturity of the believers that um, are in the family of Christ and those that he has the opportunity to minister to, and that's just really one of the good marks, I think, of a good father, of a good caretaker, of a good shepherd. You know, they, they watch out and they protect those, in their care. 
they watch out for them and they want to warn them about things that might come along to harm them. And, you know, that's, that's really what a good shepherd would do in the world of, of, of shepherding. You know, a good shepherd doesn't let wolves come into the flock because that's dangerous and the wolves will, will tear up the flock and injure and wound them. And so this is what John is doing here in warning them with this warning. And so... Um, Verse 18 is, is really the first uh, test, if you will, of identifying uh, Antichrist. And it's, it's less of a test and more than a notice of, a, of be aware of the time that we live in. But, but in verse 18, he says, children, it's the last hour, right? One of the things that, that, that young kids can sometimes have difficulty grasping is the concept of time. Right, parents, if you've ever gone on a road trip somewhere with your kids, you, you've experienced this. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. And so on and so forth, right? How long till Christmas? Christmas was yesterday, right? 364 days. That's how long, that's how long till next Christmas. Um, but it's important, you know, to, to, to have a grasp of time. And we, as God's children, you know, it's important to the Lord that, that we know what time it is spiritually, and so he uses this phrase, children, it is the last hour. You know, back in uh, chapter two, verse eight, he made reference uh, to the darkness and the light. He said, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And that was in reference to Jesus Christ having come on the scene, having been born into the world, having lived his life, having died for the sins of the whole world and been resurrected. And so when he uses his phrase, last hour, it's actually describing a kind of time, not so much a duration of time. And the reason I'm pointing that out is sometimes people will read scripture, especially one like this, and they go, you know, well, if it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, how come we're still here? Right? Why, why are we still waiting for Jesus to return? And so this phrase, last hour, it's not talking about literally 60 minutes. <laughs> it, it, it's referring to a kind of time. Um, really, it's a phrase that refers to the last part of the present age of the world's existence. That's what he means when he says last hour, okay? Um, ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been in the last hour, the last time frame of, of this current age of the world's existence. You know, since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has been doing a new thing, right? The, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, that's when something new started. That's when the new covenant was instituted. And in, you look back through scripture, you'll see that all of Old Testament history really was, was preparing the way for the work of Christ on the cross, all of Old Testament history was leading up to that, right? The Jewish people were always looking forward to the Messiah and they couldn't wait for him to come. But then all of history since that time has been in preparation of the end, the end of this world as we know it. As God has now provided salvation to all who would call on the name of Jesus Christ and then in his infinite patience and long suffering is allowing Everybody who will get saved to get saved through time, but it's all leading up towards the end of all things. And of course, the end is when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom, which is still a future event on the biblical timeline. But the work of salvation, the work of our salvation was a work that was completed at the cross. The salvation for sinners, that work was done at the cross and offered to humanity in that sense that, look, here's the work, it's done, I died, I rose again, just believe in me and you will be saved. And ever since then, we have been living in the age of grace, where God's grace is, is just being poured out upon the world as that offer of salvation is offered to generation after generation. But from John's time till now, this last hour he speaks about, there have been ungodly false teachers coming up over and over and over. Tools of Satan himself to twist and to pervert the truth of God. Why? So that people will be led astray and not find salvation. That's the devil's work. He doesn't want you to get saved. He doesn't want people to be saved. Why? Because he's evil and he's hate-filled and he knows God loves you. God loves you enough to have paid the price for your sin. The devil's like, if I could keep you from receiving that, well, that's gonna hurt God and mission accomplished for the devil. And so ever since then, there have been these false teachers and false teachings come up to lead people astray. 
And that's incidentally, biblically, one of the distinguishing marks of the end times, right? An increasing spiritual deception around the world. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And then in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was telling his disciples about the signs of the, the end of the age, right? They said, hey, what are the signs of the end of the age? What are they going to be? Well, a couple of the things he said is he goes, many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah or the Christ and will deceive many. And then he said, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And that phrase there is he's going, that's, that's how powerful they're going to be, that even if it was possible for the saved to be led astray, you know, like that, that's how much power they have in their influence. But these false Christs, these false messiahs, these antichrists um, can be someone that, 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 that claims to be Christ, that claims to be Jesus. That's where you get the instead of part of antichrist. Anti means instead of. It's a counterfeit. You know, and, and throughout the centuries, there's been more and more people that have claimed to be Jesus. And, and they're just all over the place. But it's something that's always been around but has been ramping up as we get closer to the end times. People saying, I'm Jesus. I'm him. I'm the one. I'm the, I'm the guy. But then you also can see false Christ and false messiahs in, in, when, when, when someone introduces a teaching that veers away from what the Bible says and tries to redefine who Jesus is differently than what scripture defines him as. This is the against part of antichrist, against the teaching of Christ, against who he is. And these are the situations that we've seen in, in, in the century since Jesus was here with all the different cults that have popped up, right? Mormonism, they teach a different Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach a different Jesus. There are so many different um, faiths out there that, that teach wrong things about Jesus. Islam says, oh, we believe in Jesus. Well, they believe in something different about Jesus. Uh, you have Christian science. You have, I mean, just on and on and on and on the list of people that are, are faiths where they've tried to introduce false teachings about who Jesus is. And if you study a history of religions, you'll find that since Jesus more and more religions branching off of the truth of what scripture teaches um, have come onto the scene. There's just more and more of them. And so this last hour that John is talking about, this final age of the current existence of the world as we know it, began back in John's day and has been increasing in antichrist intensity ever since. Ever since. And it's just the number the influence, the, the, the frequency of false, untrue, opposed to Christ teaching and teachers has been ramping up and ramping up and it's all leading to the time where the Antichrist comes upon the scene and deceives the whole world. So there's an idea here that for, for anybody that would ever think, you know, like you know, a, a, another false teacher you know, come on, can there be that many? You know, can there really be that many false teachers? You know, everything from people who are overtly like, we hate Jesus, to people that are like, oh no, I believe in Jesus, but let me water everything down and twist what, what, what the word says about him. Can there really be that many? Well, yes, there can. And John references that, that, that from his time until now, there have been many, many antichrists. And so, like I said, his first point maybe is less how to identify an entry-level antichrist, but more so how to identify the time that we're in, that the ramping up of antichrist really tells us that we're close. And understanding the frequency of, of these antichrist people, teachers, faiths, and philosophies indicate where we're at on the timeline. And it just highlights. It highlights the need to be diligent in knowing God's truth. It highlights the need to knowing what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And because there's all kinds of false things out there and the attack on who Jesus is is more intense than it has ever been and it's only 
going to get worse. And so if you're not well-versed in who Jesus is, it's going to be easier for you to be led astray into false teachings about who he is. And so the first point is really the test of time, right? You know, is, is, is knowing that all of these antichrists out there really point to where we are on the timeline. But verse 19, uh, John gives his, his second point, or the second point I want to make in, in acknowledging antichrists and identifying these entry-level antichrists is the test of togetherness, right? Verse 19, he says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. This is the test of togetherness, right? This is one of the ways to identify whether someone is, is operating in the spirit of antichrist, is operating as a little antichrist, as a junior antichrist, if you will, right? It's the test of togetherness. Now, when he says they went out from us, but they did not belong to us, he isn't speaking here of Christians, saved Christians who might leave one fellowship to go join another fellowship at another church, all right? Like some people over the years have tried to abuse this verse to say that, you know? Oh, you left Hosanna? You're antichrist. Well, that's ridiculous, okay? That's, that's not true at all, right? And, and I would never say that, nor anybody should say that. that. For a Christian to say, you know, God's calling me from this fellowship to another, or, or, you know, there's a reason I'm moving from this fellowship to another, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no issue with that biblically, right? You know, go where God is leading you and where you're ministered to and fed and, and all of that. But identifying how one belongs or doesn't belong to the fellowship. He gets into this in verse 22, which is um, all wrapped up in the issue of, of whether or not one denies that Jesus is a Christ, and we'll deal more with that when we get to verse 22. But what's interesting here is if you go back and you study history of religions and you look at all the branch faiths and stuff that have come about in the, in the last 2,000 years, you'll find that there's a lot of them, an overwhelming amount of them, that, that, that came out of, of, of real Bible-based scriptural churches, that, that these people that have started these false faiths came out of what would be what we would call the Christian church. And, and what John is highlighting here is, is one of the tests of identifying if someone is, is, is operating in the spirit of Antichrist or not, is that false, false believers, false teachers will always end up leaving the fellowship. They will always end up leaving the fellowship, not, not moving within the fellowship from, from church to church, but leaving the fellowship altogether. It'll always happen. And that just goes to, to show you that, you know, just because you're, you're, you're in the building, just because you're in the chat room, right, just because you're, you're at the event, it, it doesn't mean you're a part of the family of God, Okay, attendance is important when it comes to being a part of the community of church, but attendance isn't the thing that makes you saved or not saved. One of the things we could look at in determining whether or not someone is, is really truly a believer, and John's kind of been hitting on this through this chapter, right? Talking about, you know, if you keep his commands, you know him, and we discussed what that meant, right? It's not that you perfectly keep every command, but that your trajectory of your life is, is I want to please God, right? That, that's my intent. That's my goal. Right? And he's like, well, then you could know that you know him if that's your life. You know? and, and, and then he went in to talk about, you know, if you hate your brother or sister, I mean, there's, there's, there's at least cause to question whether you really know the Lord because you, you can't do both at the same time. You know? and, and, and so he's now getting into this idea of, of whether someone truly loves the fellowship, loves the body of Christ, is, is, is connected to them. You know? do, do you love hanging around other Christians? Now, don't get me wrong, you know, not every Christian is going to rub us the right way, right? <laughs> Where there's people that irritate us, there's different personalities with the body of Christ, and that's great, and that's okay, and God allows for that. But do you generally have a heart, a love towards the body of Christ, towards Christians, right? Do you want to be around other believers? You know, do you want to be around them? You know, when I first got saved, I was still, um, I was uh, drumming in a punk band, and the, you know, the, the life of, of that rock star, right, it was, was, was you go to the show, you play, and then you get hammered in the bar, right? That, that's, that's the life, right? And I got saved. And I was like, I, I, I don't want to do that anymore, right? 
I found myself going to shows and we would drum or we would play and we'd have this great show and it was awesome and, and then I'd be packing up to leave and the guys in the band were like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm gonna go hang out with my buddy and you know, play video games. <laughs> well, why? And I, I just, I don't wanna be here anymore. I, I, I wanna be with him. He was, he was a Christian and I was like, I just, I just, I wanna hang out with him. I don't wanna do this. I love drumming, but this environment, right? It just, it was, there was a change in my heart on who I wanted to associate with and who I wanted to spend my time with. You know, John says here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, he goes, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. It's a very important identifier, you know? I've ran into people, you know, in, in, in my life that are like, you know, I, I, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, and I'm like, that's great. But then they go, but I hate people. I'm like, well, you, you, you got some stuff to talk to God about, you know? Because <laughs> they're, they're, they're not really congruent, right? They don't go together, you know? And, and, and I've even talked to people in ministry, you know? And, and oh, I, I love ministry, I love ministry, but I hate people. You don't understand what ministry is then. <laughs> ministry is people, right? You know, and um, there are some, you know, that, that attend church and, and watch stuff online, you know, diligently and are plugged in. And, and they, 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 maybe they have a Bible, and they li- but they never feel comfortable around God's people. God's people always make them feel ill at ease. But, but they go back out into the world, back out to their you know, non-Christian friends, back out to the bar, back out to the party, back out there, and ah, these are my people, right? This is where I feel at home, and this is kind of what John is talking about here. You know, that, that, that the antichrist, or those with an antichrist spirit or operating an antichrist spirit will always leave the fellowship because they're, they're not part of it. They don't feel comfortable there. They don't belong is the word he uses. And so entry-level antichrists and false teachers opposed to the truth of, of Jesus that God's word declares will eventually, and this is where all these false faiths spin out, they'll eventually find some verse that they'll take out of context and, and, and then they'll spin that out of context into some new theology and branch off into some, some weird branch of Christianity. But then still claim, oh no, we're Christians. We're, we're Christians, we're still a part of the church, and that's, that's how the world views like Mormonism today. Oh, it's just a Christian, um, um, what's the word, denomination. <laughs> oh, Mormons are just a Christian denomination, and, and no, they're not. I know Mormons. They're, they're, a lot of them that I've met are great people and have great hearts, but, but they're just deceived. You know, it's, it's not a branch or a denomination of Christianity. It's a false faith because of what it teaches about Jesus. And so these, these, these false teachers or people who are operating in this, this spirit of opposition to the truth of who Jesus is, their departure from the fellowship, what John is laying out here is, is, is proof, is evidence that they were never part of the Christian family to begin with. And so that's what he's pointing out here. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone leaves and departs that we you know, hate them and, ah, oh, you know, curses be upon you. No, we're, we're still called to love people and pray for them, right? And, but when we're looking at, at teachers we're listening to and we're looking at the fellowship, the koinonia that God has for us as the church, sometimes we have to evaluate who we're spending our time with because of the effect that they can have on us um, as much as we're praying that we have a positive effect on them. Jesus said that those of the world will be loved by the world. And when he said that, it was talking about that, you know, those within the church who, who, who go out and, and, they, and they preach a false, twisted gospel. They start preaching um, untruths, uh, things that are contrary to the biblical, uh, the biblical record of who Jesus is and, and, and all of that. When they go out to do that, um, it'll always be characterized by a false presentation of who Jesus is and what he did and everything connected to that. But the world will look at those Bible-believing, or those Christians, and then they'll look at the Bible-believing Christians and go, why can't you be more like them? And we see that in our world today. You know, some that, that go so far as to say, you know, um, we're never going to talk about sin. And I'm treading a very careful line here, okay? <laughs> I, I do not declare to know anybody's heart, all right? 
but in observation, when I see some that go, no, we're not going to talk about sin, we're not going to talk about lifestyles, we're not going to talk about abortion, we're not going to talk about anything, we're just going to simply talk about, you know, your best life. And you go, and the world goes, we love that church, we love that guy, we love his, his ministry, and then they look at those who go, no, sin is real and you need to repent of that, and the world goes, why, shut up, why can't you be like them? And to some degree, there's a spirit of opposition towards the truth of what the Bible says. Now, again, I'm not declaring that I know anybody's heart in, 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 a, in a passing condemnation on anybody, but there's at least concern and something to pay attention to, right? Sometimes we're surprised when someone might leave solid doctrinal uh, uh, good theology. They might leave the fellowship to pursue falsehoods, and that might be a surprise to us, you know, but, but what John is saying here is, look, they're leaving. It's just, it's, it's evidence that there was something other than genuine love for Christ in their hearts all along. Think of the example of Judas Iscariot, right? We think of Judas in, in his life, and, you know, we're at the Last Supper, and Jesus says to the 12 that are assembled there, somebody sitting here now is going to betray me. And what does it tell us in the story? The disciples were shocked. <gasps> Who is it? You know what nobody there did? I knew it! Judas is a snake! Not a single one of them said that. All of them were, is it me? Who? Who could it possibly be? But you read the story, and, and Judas eventually got up, and it says he left to go betray Jesus. And what did he demonstrate in that? That he never really belonged to the family at all. He was never really part of the family. Judas is a warning to all of us that, that you can have a ton of contact with believers. You can hear great teaching and preaching. You could be raised in a Christian home. You could be doing Christian things but never personally come to know Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, as your Lord and Savior. You can act like a Christian, you can speak like a Christian, you can carry a Bible like a Christian, but eventually when you depart the fellowship, and incidentally that phrase, uh, it says there in verse 19, they went out from us, that phrase means to forsake something to turn away or to leave something entirely. When a person does that, John is like, you know, it's kind of a test here of, of it, it, according to John, you know, it leads credence to the fact that that person was never part of the family to begin with. So identifying entry-level antichrist involves whether or not they remain in the fellowship. And when I say the fellowship, I mean the family of God, biblically defined. None of us are perfect. We're all flawed and we all make mistakes. But there's a commonality in who Jesus is according to scripture that unites us together and it's really, really important. So the third point I think John mentions here in acknowledging and identifying entry-level antichrists is the test of teaching. Verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Now, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21 next time as we're looking at how to resist entry-level antichrist, but, but the identifying test here we find in verse 22 and 23. The test is this. What does a person say or teach about Jesus Christ? That's how to identify whether someone is, is operating in an antichrist spirit or not. You know, doctrine is paramount. Theology is key. That's why we're called to study and learn. That's why God raises up teachers to teach. That's why we're you know, pushing community groups and we're, we're encouraging everybody to get together to, to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we might get tired of hearing the word doctrine all the time. Ugh, another study about doctrine. 
You know, I didn't come here to go to college. I came here for church. Just entertain me, puppet. Make me feel good. You know, and it's like, whoa, what? You know, nobody's ever said that to me. I was over-exaggerating, so. Dance, pastor. No, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. But sometimes we, we could, you know, like, I get it. I, I, I get theology. I, I understand, you know, and, 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 but, but what we believe about who Jesus is matters most. What we believe about who Jesus is matters most, especially in the light of salvation and eternity. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus just a God? Is Jesus really Michael the archangel? Is Jesus just a great prophet? Is Jesus the Father? Or is he the Son? These are questions that, that, that people can ask. And sometimes Christians could get to a place where we go, who cares? Who cares? Look, you believe in God. They believe in God. You guys have some differences in who Jesus is. Can't we just all get along? I mean, you know, if they're sincere in their belief, isn't that okay? Isn't that okay? Well, if sincerity were the hallmark of truth, if sincerity, whether you were sincere or not, was the thing that determined the truth or the falsehood of something, if you think that, then I would say you need to apply that to every area of your life, not just faith and religion. You need to apply that to every area of your life, you know? And there's so many examples where, where we can see that sincerity didn't make a thing right. You know, imagine a, a, a doctor who prescribes the wrong medication to your loved one, and your loved one dies because of that. Do we go back and say, well, I mean, the doctor was, sinc he sincerely thought it was the right medication, so no big deal, it's okay. No, we, we, there's still... You're held accountable for the error. The sincerity didn't make the error go away, right? And, and so we can't think that when it comes to faith. Sincerity doesn't make a thing right or true. And so when we ask the question, is it really important who Jesus is? Is it really important that a person believes in who Jesus is? Well, let me read to you what Jesus said in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his, only, his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because, and here's the key, he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. It's literally life or death. Now, the word name there in, in John 3.18, when he says, because he has not believed in the name, that word name doesn't just mean like, oh, I believe in his name. I believe his name was Jesus, right? <laughs> no, that, that word name in the original language means who he is in every aspect. To believe in the name of Jesus means to believe in Jesus, who he is in every aspect, his identity, his work, his purpose, who he is. Jesus is saying to the crowd there in John 3, if you don't believe that I am the one that I claim to be, then you will truly die in your sins. That's what he's saying there in those verses. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you are believing wrong things about Jesus, you're in danger of believing in the wrong Jesus. And the truth of your salvation then is in question. And your salvation is eternity or not eternity. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Remember, John is writing um, in part to combat Gnostic teaching that was infiltrating the church at the time. And if you remember the Gnostics, they would say, you know, Jesus, he's a great guy, right? He's a fun dude. He could do some tricks, but, but he's not God. 
And, and some of the Gnostics were like, went so far to say, yeah, you know, I mean, in fact, he didn't even have a physical body. He was just a phantom, an illusion, a ghost, right? John's like, nah. <laughs> that is not true, so it is not congruent with who he is, and it's important enough for him to be like, children, it's the last hour. You gotta get this right. Now, the reason I said that um, if you're believing in wrong things about Jesus, you're in danger. Because, you know, I think all of us, to some degree, on some level, when we first got saved, we may have believed some, some wrong things about Jesus, right, in our ignorance. But as we grow and as we study and as we learn and as we dig into theology, as we hear teaching and go, oh, you know what, I thought this, and, you know, that was incorrect, but when we hang on to those untruths and go, you know, even though the Bible says, says the opposite of what I'm believing in, I'm still going to hang on to this truth. When you do that, you're in danger. So John is telling us here, you could really kind of tell if someone's antichrist or not. You could even, you know, at least start the determination on whether, whether you think someone might be truly saved or not, truly a believer by what they say about Jesus Christ. Again, at the end of the day, none of us know a person's heart. but we're to know truth and to be able to say, that's not right. <laughs> that's not what the Bible says about who Jesus is. is. Is what they say about who he is, what Jesus himself said about who he is? Is, is what they teach about who Jesus is, what God said in his word about who he is? You know, now it's interesting what, what you think, what specifically is John pointing out about their denial? John says that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's what it says there. They deny that he is the Christ. You know, if you're a brand new baby Christian here watching online, you know, Christ is not his last name. All right? It, it's a title. When we say Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the Christ. The concept from the, from the Old Testament and the Jewish culture was he's the Messiah, the Savior, Right? It's a phrase that, that means the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the deliverer. All this is wrapped up that Jesus is the Christ. He is the deliverer. Not Jesus plus your works. No, Jesus is the deliverer. He is the Savior. But it also involves their denial of what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, and we have record of it in the Gospels, that Jesus said, I am the I am. Jesus himself said, I am the I am. He said, he, the Bible tells us he's the one from the beginning. Jesus said that he was one with the Father, but not the Father. Jesus indicated that they were two separate persons in his teaching and training while saying that we, me and the Father, are one. So who is anti-Christ? Who is opposed to, opposite of Jesus the Christ? Those who deny that he is the anointed one deny that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. Those that, that deny by word or deed that he is the I am, as he said he is, that he was from the beginning, not a creation in the temporal time. He is one with the Father, but not the Father, rather the Son. Those that deny that, John is saying they're anti-Christ. Verse 22, he goes, who is the liar? if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. And I think this is, is, is directly combating something that was big then and has recently come on the scene in our history in the last hundred years. This idea that, that they're, they're, they're Jesus as the Son and God the Father, they're not separate. There's this you know, aggressive denial of the Trinity in the world today and that there is no Trinity, that Jesus is the Father, like he is the Father. The Father left heaven and became Jesus and there is no Holy Spirit. And, and, and it's a big teaching today and there's hundreds of thousands of adherents to this false doctrine. But in John 5, look at what Jesus said. Jesus responded to them, John 5, 17. My father is still working, and I am working also. 
This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And again, I think John may have had this in mind as he was writing this letter of 1 John. There are those in the world today. There are those in churches today. There are those who, who, who say, I, I, I believe God. I believe in God, but, but, but I, I, I don't really believe Jesus really is the Christ. I don't believe Jesus really is who he says he is in his word, you know. Um, now, some even say, no, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but, but, but how they live and the choices and the decisions they make declare exactly the opposite of that. How they live declares, you know, I don't believe he's the only means of salvation because I constantly want to bring this other stuff into, into my, my, my salvation experience. How they live declares, I don't believe he is the only way to the Father. How they live says, I don't believe he's God in the flesh. I don't believe he died on the cross or rose from the dead. And if that describes you this morning, if that describes your current thinking and belief about who Jesus is, whether you're here in the room or online, I just want to tell you this with all the love in my heart. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in God as he has revealed himself in his word. You believe in something else. You believe in a God of your own making. A God that is redefined by your own definitions. And sadly, this something else that you believe in will not lead to salvation. It will not. According to John, you're currently operating in the spirit of antichrist, of opposition to the truth, and that's an important thing to discover. Why? So you could repent of it. So you could come to truth and come to know Jesus as he is and who he is as revealed in scripture to receive the salvation that he has for you. Who Jesus is is everything. Because if he isn't who he says he is, if he isn't God, if he isn't the Christ, well, then we're in big trouble. Because it would mean that we're following a lunatic who blatantly lied to everybody. That's what it would mean. Because he went around telling people he was God. He went around telling people he was the Messiah, he was the Christ. He, he went around saying, I am the I am, right? That's a term that God in the Old Testament used to refer to himself. And Jesus claimed that for him. Jesus said that he and the Father were one, and he also indicated they weren't the same person. And people have been trying to kill his name and kill belief in him and kill the reality of who he is ever since. You ever notice that it's when Jesus is brought up, people can get really mad? <laughs> Some of us go to our family events. Don't talk about Jesus, right? I think most of you that I know here, you're like, nah, we're gonna talk about Jesus. <laughs> I love that, I love that. Loving, yes, but, but we're gonna talk about truth, right? Jesus, you bring him up in a conversation with people at work or wherever, people get really mad, but not so much when you bring up Muhammad. Not so much when you bring up Buddha. Not so much when you bring up some other religious figure, but bring up Jesus. Bring up the claims he made. Bring up the, what he said about who he is and, and all the implications of that, and oh boy, you cause all kinds of trouble. Why is it that Christian prayer is fought against in schools but not Islamic prayer? It's because it's not about religion. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Why? Because the name of Jesus represents more than just a figurehead in history. It represents way more than that. Jesus made serious, 
radical claims, and he made demands on the lives of people based upon those claims. Claims like, you must be born again. Claims like, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. Claims like, no one gets to heaven but through me. And those claims fly in the face of our sinful culture. How dare you tell me that whatever I want is not going to get me everything I want. There are many people today who are antichrist. They may not be the antichrist, but they operate in the spirit of opposition to Jesus and they operate in a spirit of substitutionary or counterfeit versions of who he is or who he claimed to be. And it's important for us to learn the difference, to learn to discern the difference between truth and error regarding this because it is literally a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And I know we've been saying this for a long time, but the end is closer today than it has ever been. Closer today than it has ever been. The sheer number and frequency of false teachers, the sheer number and frequency of false faiths is evidence of that. Be loving, but be cautious with those who leave the fellowship to go after a different gospel or a different definition of who Jesus is. Look into what they teach about him. Look into what they say about him and, 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 and the, the, everything related to his person and his work. Because here's the truth, Jesus is God. The second person of the Godhead. The Holy Trinity, which is composed of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago and was born of a virgin. Fully God and fully man at the same time. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Revealing to us God in a fresh, new way. Revealing to us God's heart, God's mind, his intention, his desire. And then this Jesus died on a cross for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. Why? Because he alone was and ever would be without sin. He alone served as the perfect atonement to satisfy the holy judgment of God against sin. Having paid the price, he rose from the dead, documented by hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, and ascended back into heaven where he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. Because he is who he is. Because he did what he said he came to do. We, all of us, when we truly put our faith and trust in him, who he says he is, not our twisted versions, in who he says he is, we are forgiven of every sin we have ever done and forgiven of every sin we will ever do. Our dead spirit is made alive. We are born again, as scripture says, and we are seated or sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, identified as his children forevermore, guaranteed the hope of heaven. This is our Jesus. This is who he is and what he did for us. Any other Jesus is false. Any other Jesus is a lie. And I say that boldly. I proclaim that boldly, and so should you as Christians. Those who preach those lies, those who trust in those untruths will sadly, sadly find themselves without a savior on judgment day. And that's the heart for the loss that, that we always pray about God developing within us. The heart for the loss that would compel us to pass out tracts and go to evangelism skill meetings and in car shows, you know, not to look at the cars, but to say, hey, God loves you. And that's the heart for the lost that would compel us to do that to speak up at work or at school or in a group of people that hate Jesus and say, you know what, that's, that's not okay or that's not true or that's wrong. Or, it's that heart for the lost. And if you don't know him today or if you realize that, that maybe you've been following error in the truth of who Jesus is, repent. Believe in his name and be saved from the condemnation that is reserved for those that don't know him. As I mentioned in a couple weeks, next time we gather together, we're gonna be looking at the second half of this message. 
and looking at three ways to resist those with an antichrist spirit. How to insulate ourselves against their influence. Um, but next week for July 4th weekend, Independence Day, the weekend we're gathering to celebrate our freedoms. Um, we're gonna have a guest speaker with us. It's a missionary that was here with us earlier this year um, from Moldova, which is right outside Ukraine. And he's going to be sharing with us what God is doing over there in the area in the midst of all that has taken place. But really focusing on how people are finding freedom in the name of Jesus Christ in the midst of these really horrible situations over there. And so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to getting back to this in a couple weeks and getting the other half of this message. But let's close in prayer. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord. We're so grateful for who you are and what you've done. God, you came to this earth, clothed yourself with frail humanity, lived as a man while fully God, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins. You paid the price. You paid the fine, which was the death penalty, Lord. You paid that for us. God, you did that because you're God. You were the only one perfect without sin. Jesus, you aren't some angel. You're not just some great prophet. You are God in the flesh, and we believe in you. We believe in what you said about yourself. We believe that you are the I am. We also believe that you are the son. And God, we know according to your word that because we believe in the son, we also have the father. And that doesn't mean that you are the father. Lord, you said no one comes to the father but through me and we believe in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And God, it was your sacrifice on our behalf that wiped clean the offenses we've had, we had against you, God. It was your sacrifice on our behalf that, that even created the opportunity for us to be forgiven and restored and to come back into relationship with you. And yet, God, we know that there are so many in this world today that want to deny who you are and want to either overtly or subtly change the truths about who you are because really at the end of the day they want to make their faith, their salvation about them and their own efforts and their own work. But God, your word is so very clear that there is no work we could possibly do to earn our salvation. It's through faith in who you are. We believe that. We proclaim that. And if there's anybody in here this morning while we're praying, you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're watching online and you want to receive him, I want to pray with you right now to receive him. And just, just repeat after me. Say, say, Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. But today, I come to you. I believe in who you are as you have revealed in your word. I believe you are God. I believe you died for me. And I put my faith in you. Cleanse me of all my sin. Teach me how to live for you. Help me to discern truth from error. Open up your word to me that I would know you thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer this morning, um, we have some new believers packs we want to give you to just help you on this relationship, this journey you're on. You know, if you prayed online to receive Jesus this morning, um, let us know in the chat and we'll get you, we'll mail you one of the new believers packs as well. But guys, we, guys, we, we live in a world that, that, it, that is aggressively attacking the truth of Christianity. And, you know, over the last handful of years, I'm sure you've all noticed it, where, where we've gone from saying, well, there's a difference of opinion between conservative ideas and liberal ideas to, no, conservative ideas equal saying, well, hate. Conservative ideas equal bigotry.
conservative ideas equal racism. Why? It's because if Satan could get the public to identify our beliefs as Christians with everything he really is as evil, he's going to think he's one. But we know that Jesus is alive. We know that he is God Almighty, that he is on the throne. His will will be done. We know it's going to get darker. We know it's going to get more difficult, but that's why we got to shine brighter and stand stronger. And I pray that God's spirit would fall upon all of us, that we would do exactly that, to stand for Jesus, to stand for righteousness, to proclaim who he is in all areas of our lives, boldly, with love, with compassion, but with zeal as well, that people would come to know true salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen? God bless you guys.